0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Please don't skip forward. Please hear me out. It's coming up to Christmas, and we want to be around in 2024 to keep having the conversations like the one you're about to listen to. And the only way we can do that is if some of you dig deep, throw your hands in your pockets, and give us the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap pint nowadays. Uh, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of the podcast that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's a few quid to you, but to us, it's lights on, mics on, and we go into 2024 limping along but still able to take the odd swing and keep carving out the space for conversations that thousands of you are listening to. So we just need a few of you to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. And it's not a one-way street. I tell you all the time, you get a ton of additional content, all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed, entirely plea-free. So think of it as the little Christmas present you can get for yourself. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please join us. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and there's a smile on our faces, Martin, despite the doom and gloom and the awful, awful weather and the awful, awful news. Why are you smiling, Martin?
1: Ah, oh, my favorite old libertarian is on, you know.
0: <laughs> We're delighted to be joined back on the podcast by all the way from, all the way from Denver, Colorado, uh, Professor of Economics, Constantine Gordiev. of it's good to see you again. How are you keeping? How are you guys? We're good. We're good. Yeah, it's 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 been a shitty time as we as we said, and everybody's kind of feeling it and waiting for. Uh, I believe what is it? What is it? The happy holidays, as you guys say over there now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but,
2: yeah, you but, can't say Merry Holidays no, or no, you know, Merry no. Christmas. You know, that's just not inclusive enough. Uh, you
0: know? there's, there's a there's a there's a guy who does a Colin for. It's a radio show, called, and his his character is Colin from Portsmouth. He goes, "You can't say Merry Christmas anymore." I said "Merry Christmas" to a guy, pushed him in the canal, and I got arrested for it. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, look, um, they're, they're, can we start on um, and then I'm going I'm going to say on a good thing and you're going to tell me perhaps why it's not the U.S. economy. It's booming, Constantine. The you know record levels of employment. They've they've cut inflation. They've they've um, they've started to uh, uh, make make. The cost of living decreases are, are starting to come into people's pay packets, and everybody's much happier. Am I am I wrong now? The 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 economy. Yeah, you're is...
2: totally wrong. Completely. You're so bloody wrong on the last point. Okay. All of the headlines you were talking about, they're there. Okay. And the claim is that we should be feeling all absolutely joy, uh, you know, joyous and uh, enlightened, and you know, feeling great about the economy, feeling great about Bidenomics and Biden himself, and none of us do. Um, And the reason for it is because the numbers you are referencing are largely kind of numbers that exist in the heads of the economists, as opposed to in the pockets of the, and in the, you know, everyday life of the ordinary people. So you mentioned unemployment, yes? best unemployment rate you know 3.9% is october data but we're pretty much around there still uh just 6.36 million people unemployed uh this is well below that what we call non cyclical rate of unemployment which is a theoretical construct um by the economists which basically says the level of unemployment if the unemployment drops below that level uh then we're going to have inflationary pressures so in other words we should be having inflationary pressures and we instead having the lower inflation pressures. Okay, let's not confuse that with the deflation pressures. Sleepy Joe Biden, of course, wakes up and starts talking about you know how the prices are coming down. No, no, no. I mean the guy doesn't understand how um, inflation works. Uh, it's not that the prices are going down; it's that the prices are rising at a slower rate. So we're getting slower, but more secret. As people yeah, say, things are um, getting
0: things are getting things are getting
2: worse at a slower pace. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay. And so most of the people actually feel in that because the level of prices and price increases and cost increases in everyday life has been staggering. I'll mention that in a second, but let's stay with unemployment. I mean, what underlies this unemployment, very low unemployment rate? Okay. Yeah, there has been job creation and that has been robust beyond any doubts, but on the other hand, our labor force participation rate yeah. is only sixty-two point seven percent,
1: and that's which, really telling. That's that's yeah, really telling
2: because the last time we had that was circa January nineteen seventy-eight, which was the tail end of the absolutely massive two recessions and high inflation caused by oil shocks back then, which is note the same thing which we had today as well. We had supply shocks, yes, back then, and we had supply shocks. Now and they have driven in, um, inflation. So and of course they also are driving economic slowdown in 1970s. It was a recession. And in during today's times we have the booming economy. So what's happening there? Okay, his interesting part about the labor force participation. The labor force participation for men is about 67.9 percent. It is basically below 69.1 percent, which was pre-COVID era low. So we're below the pre-COVID era low in terms of men's participation. And we kind of go around, most of the press and media goes around and says, well, we don't know why that happens. Here's an interesting, I'll give you a quote from the Federal Reserve research, uh, about a year old research now, on what is driving the male labor force participation lower. And this is a direct quote. The reasons for the decline in male labor force participation have been widely examined in both the popular press, which is untrue, and academic literature, which is also kind of untrue. But anyways, the general consensus of research is that multiple factors are involved, including a shift in the U.S. industry structure. Here, moving off the quote, what the hell that means? It basically means that males are becoming unemployable because their skills have deteriorated, okay, relative to the existent and evolutionary, if you want, technologies and everything else. Now, back to the quote. The second cause, a decline in male educational attainment I mean, why would that happen? I mean, you know, it's not like tuition rates have g- grown and there's, there isn't really inflation in education either, yeah? I mean, right? Delayed family formation. So basically, the households, and the males in particular, delaying their family formation, and that keeps them out of the workforce. I mean, this is kind of like 19th century thinking to me about the family. Does that but, make okay. sense
1: Constantine?
2: Well, it kind of... It kind of does if you think that the substitute to family formation is not working and not acquiring skills, but instead sitting on the couch and doing nothing, which is exactly the next thing. The rise of substance abuse amongst the males and heavy use of video games End quote, not kidding you, this is actual two major drivers, substance abuse and video games. This is like, you remember Trump's allegory in 2016 election of an overweight male stuck in parents' basement uh, going all out as a keyboard warrior. There you have it. Apparently, we have millions of them. So many of them that our overall statistics for the labor markets are doing this bizarre thing where the unemployment is really great, very low, and our labor force participation is bloody terrible, absolutely. So,
0: so, like, this is, we would, like we would have a generation as you know in in Ireland that we'd often say generation stuck at home you know there's yeah. stu- but this is a generation as martin likes to call it failure to launch you know
2: the- um correct you are completely correct the, the paradox of all of that is that in Ireland to a lesser extent of course because in Ireland there was different times back in the 1970s and the 80s but in the united states it was very pronounced in the united states and the united kingdom during the 1980s 1990s even There used to be this kind of laughing attitude in the press, especially in the kind of, you know, right-wing press, um, about Italian males staying longer at home and in their families. Well, now, congratulations, in the United States, a greater proportion of the 40-year-old males are staying at home and living in their parents' homes than they are in Italy. I mean, like, we've gone the full circle completely, yes? So... We, we we have this, you know, so in terms of economic growth, you mentioned the numbers as well. Okay, we have this economy which is effectively being driven by steroids of fiscal spending. Most of the indicators for the fiscal budget deficits suggest that we are going to have a worse year in terms of fiscal deficit adjusted for the timing of policies, okay, um, than last year. Last year was still the tail end of the pandemic. This year there was no pandemic, and yet we're spending like drunken sailors. I mean, it's literally a paradoxical economy, yes? We have the federal government, which is running high and higher deficits, going deeper and deeper into debt. Now, debt dynamics are slightly different relative to GDP because, of course, we have high inflation, which means that that hides the extent of our debt because the prices are rising. So nominal GDP is rising faster as a result of prices rising. So you have this kind of state of economic boom in America where most of the people are not feeling any real boominess in it, okay? Um, and instead, we have the government spending on the, like a drunken sailor. So the proverbial gets more surreal. Mm. I mean, we have fallen household savings. You mentioned savings before. They're declining right now. I mean, it's shifting real consumption. And what does that mean, okay? What, what does that mean really on the ground? It means that we are spending more and more on experiences and short-term goods and less and less on housing purchases and durable consumption and investments.
1: But so, is this is this the vicious circle, Constantine, where people are locked out, so they have no choice but to spend on the short term and the you experience? Nailed it. You
2: nailed it. And this is exactly what is missing in the analysis in most of the kind of media and the reading of The Economist. Latest data shows that households with me, uh, with median savings um, um, is spending roughly one half of their income on median rents. And by the time you factor in their car payments, the household has just shy of $1,500. And this is a household with two people employed in it, yes? A month to finance pensions, to finance health care insurance, health care expenditures on top of the insurance, food, car insurance, and everything else. So households are not buying homes, and they are delaying having kids, and the end result of all of this, and they're also delaying education or, or getting out of the education for the males, as I was mentioning before. And at the end, the result of that is more money is being spent on local microbrewers and hipster coffee, and less money spent on investing in household well being, especially long term well being. Everything is getting hypersized. It's the economics of the pan galactic gargle blaster. Remember that it, thing. There <laughs> has
1: to be a phrase for this, Constantine. And I, I, I I'm me, not as I'm good thinking, as
2: some other economists about I, i'm Purchase thinking in,
1: I'm thinking incelium is what I'm thinking. Is that they've just created this generation of predominantly men um, living in their basements, living in their parents' basements. And um, neither contributing much nor taking away much from society, just hedging but, but
2: That's true. But also, by the way, when we keep uh, you know talking about males where this is the most pronounced, uh, actually, female labor force participation also is past the peak right now in the United States. And it has been on a secular trend decline uh, for quite a while, you know, since the global financial crisis onwards. Um, it did uptick a little bit in more recent months. Uh, But that uptick is still not dramatic enough to restore to the pre-COVID levels of participation, which were low to begin with. Now, set aside the labor force participation. Look at the remaining labor force. And remember, when I was quoting from the Federal Reserve um, research there, there's a telling story there, which is not really being said in direct ways. Uh, When you take these people out of the labor force, yes? The overall remaining labor force productivity should increase because you have the higher quality of human capital left there. People who are not addicted, people who are not playing games, people who are not withdrawing from education, people who are not withdrawing from skills acquisition and so forth. Yes. So on average, the remaining workforce should be better productivity, but we're not seeing that. Labor productivity in the United States is actually shrinking in terms of the rate of growth. It's declining in rate of growth on a long-term trajectory for over a decade now. And we're puzzled by that because you have an improvement in, pr- in uh, both combination of the quality of the workforce remaining in the workforce and at the same time improvement in terms of the technologies that we're having uh, deployed in the workforce. And yet the productivity is actually still declining. The same, by the way, is happening for the total factor productivity. So it's productivity rate of growth mm. is declining. Now in the UK, for example, we have actual decline in productivity, so it actually is a negative rates of growth there, and that's been also for quite a while. But in the United States, we are not but, yet there. But
0: Constantine, so okay, two things really quickly to say on on the the say the generation failed to launch. There's obviously huge underlying societal issues there. We've seen the the, the growth in opioids uh, as 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 a as a tool of addiction, unfortunately, and how they've become a problem. We've seen then, you know, the the the, the lack of you know, social mobility and and how these things have played out. And now it plays out in such a way as that, you know, we have a situation whereby um, there's like, Joe Biden's has got not inspiring anyone, you know. No one, <laughs> no one believes that he's he's the like. If you think if you have a question and Joe, B- you think Joe Biden might be the answer, you need to get a different question, you know. And and
2: um, <laughs> you're pretty much right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but but the but then you have other people who then are screaming. Well, if you if you don't vote for Biden, Trump will get in. And I put it to people that oh, they, they, this just shows you the the complete um, uselessness of the political system because you know
2: oh it's. Rot, rot never sets from the tail. Fish rots from its head, yes? Mm. it's a good old saying, and it's absolutely true. It is the crisis of leadership, which is first and foremost, and then it's followed by the crisis in institutions. If you think about, if you go back to, say, for example, Obama election, yes? The first election, okay? Um, and the shift from the George Bush to Obama era and this kind of moment of spike in hope and all... That is the moment when the leadership was lost. By 2016 and the Trump election, we have the institutional rot set in where there is no longer confidence in institutions amongst the population, where the institutional framework is not capable of dealing, not just with the president who is off the hinges completely, but generally with the process of making any sort of change or reform. Look at the Congress. I mean, they're currently engaged in this parlor game or kabuki theater of different investigations and everything else. They can't even freaking pass the basic budget, let alone have any sort of structural reform. United States have gone with no major immigration reform since the days of Ronald Reagan. I mean, if you remember those days, you are probably as old as me, and you have to be pretty wacky to kind of be into politics and policymaking uh, as an interest in order to still remember it, even for my age. So you're talking about the retirees who are actually remembering that stuff.
0: Well, the, part, we well, the, had... the issue with that is, though, is that people are now nostalgic for Ronald Reagan. because
2: Yeah, understandably, yeah. because shit was done. Something happened, okay? Now, you can argue whether it was badly done or it was well done, but Ronald Reagan had aspiration. So, let's put Biden's aspiration into the context here. So, okay, let's even go back further, yes? George Bush, the junior, was elected on no aspiration, not even perspiration. I mean, there was nothing, nation, okay? And now, of course, his tenure was marked by exactly that. And then following him comes Obama. Obama is an inspirational leader who fell, falls on his face publicly into the mud the first minute he makes the first step, okay? So that's the reality of the Obama. Post-Obama, we have Trump, who is aspirational only insofar as he's a demagogue, okay? And that's, of course, a divisionary aspiration. And now we have Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, okay, so and we have now Joe Biden, okay? Joe Biden's big aspiration is that we're going to build the infrastructure for the United States for the 21st century, and we're going to tackle China in that. So we're competing with China on infrastructure. Let's take a look at one of those things. He relaunched the same part of the proposal for his infrastructure, big long term plans related to the rail reforms and rail investment in the United States twice this year. The same freaking number. He held two press conferences this year alone, talking exactly the same stuff as if it is new. Bizarre. Okay, all right. So at least you would say this is, but that's a big. Ticket item. This is historical level of infrastructure investment in rail in the United States in the last century. Now, let's think big numbers, eh? I mean, we're talking trillion. Mm, No. We're talking about hundreds of billions. Mm, No. The whole quantum of that investment is sixty-six zero billion billion. Give you a context. There has been, for the 30 years now, odd development of a 170-mile stretch of high-speed rail between San Francisco and Los Angeles. The estimated cost of that, 170 miles, okay, of high-speed rail, is currently at 35 billion U.S. dollars, more than half of the entire allocation of the historical investment for the nationwide. And Joe Biden stands there and actually mumbles on about that this level of investment is going to bring us above China. But we're going to but, catch on, up like, I mean, like I, 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 you I, I, of, like, I need to push in and make Nikita it. Nikita Khrushchev was more sane than he that. He also
0: got a lot of like. He turned around and said, "We're going to make the so see." The, you, some will say the unfortunately named IRA the Inflation Reduction Act okay and it has mass, massive massive um, amounts of investment historically we can't we should really cut this out but the IRA right
2: nonetheless he <laughs> um, <laughs> has because we're going to get to the historic yeah, recap yeah, of the tax exactly. <laughs> of inflation but, but the best part
0: of it is because he said oh we needed to do this and he, he was very clever because he managed to put aside a lot of money for uh, the Green New Deal. And no one mentioned the fact that they've never drilled for oil as much as in, in history as they are right now.
2: Completely, yes. And he actually is the one who enabled all of that, But you know, like effectively, you know, supporting Ukraine and, you know, forcing Europe off the Russian gas and oil, of course, you know, and as a result of that, you know, that created the biggest market for LNG that there ever was, you know. And like this is like in at least in this way, United States is becoming more like Canada. Okay, an honest, dishonest broker. Okay, it's not pretending anymore. We're going to be you know investing in green technologies and shipping dirty energy all over the freaking world. You know, I, I, welcome to us. And I know. And one other you know?
0: point on that, Martin. I promise. And we're and we're gonna and we're gonna you know we're gonna be really competitive with China and we're gonna put in the Chips Act, which is gonna piss off all of Europe. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well. I, I, I mean,
1: Look, I think the china connection is, Europe, but I mean <laughs> I think the situation you've described about uh, you know we'll say a workforce under participating a lot of drugs uh, we'll say a lot of downtime for for what should be productive time and that you know that the focus is on china and i'm kind of reminded of china then in the 1830s who had its own opioid epidemic And was in the same kind of lethargic position at that time that the US is in now. I mean, history does echo, but the world is moving. Yeah. Yeah. The world is moving east. And from an outsider's view of the US, we see a country in decline in, in so many different ways. Do you think anybody in the US, any leader, could have the impetus to pull it out of the spin? Not right
2: now, certainly not the frontrunners. And when you look at the smaller minority parties, unfortunately, they are never given really significant enough platform from which they can attract the ca- candidates that perhaps can offer something different. I mean, this is a paradox, yes? I mean, we have right now Jody Sleeper running against, you know, Trump the Creeper, yes? And it's basically, <laughs> the, the contest is literally between who has the worst net ratings so to give you, the, like, 538 is a great website because what they do is they aggregate all national and state-level polls, you know, and they kind of produce one single number, weighted, weights in different polls by their biases and stuff like that. And you look at, for example, Trump approval rating right now is 42.5%. That's Jeez. dire. That's horrible, okay? That's really low. His disapproval rating is 52.7%, and you're saying, like, awesome. Why worry about Trump? So he has net net disapproval rating of 10.2 percentage points. That is the best he had in two years. Trump is currently improving relative to his own past track record. How can that be? The guy is in every court in the nation being trashed out left, right, and center on so many different charges. charges. and And yet the guy is getting less unpopular. Joe, on the other hand, is getting more unpopular his approval rating is 38.1% this is worse than trump's and disapproval rating is 55.1% which is worse than trump's and the net disapproval rating is 17 percentage points 70% worse than it is for trump this is the second largest gap in year and a half for joe biden
0: And he's he's losing all the the swing
2: states as well. If you have a skunk living under your porch, that skunk would get a better approval rating than Joe Biden does.
0: There's a there's a worse there's a worse scenario, Martin, as well, because there's third party candidates um, like RFK Jr. who has his own um, idiosyncrasies, shall we say, <laughs> 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 interesting interesting ideas on vaccines, for example. Um, and, and you've you've Cornell West, who who's actually quite a charismatic man, but is never going to garner any kind of um, following. But maybe in places where 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 Biden needs that extra one percent. It will go to Cornell West. It will go to, to RFK and it will mean that it will it will do that. But but it shows the lack of whereby and this happened this week, Constantine, you probably saw it. They ran a a, a debate of Gavin Newsom from California against Ron DeSantis from Florida. And many people said it was the first debate of not this presidential election cycle, but the next one. And it,
2: which is scary. Terrifying. Like I mean, like, you know, Ron DeSantis is not just scary by his ideas, okay? They are, you know, they are out there completely, you know? Um, but he's also scary insofar as that his leadership style is only based on being able to, run, to rule by decree. There's absolutely no kind of power of conviction in Ron DeSantis. Gavin Newsom, on the other hand, is. A person with a great hair.
0: Yeah, he's, he looks I He mean, looks fabulous. Like, yeah.
2: There's absolutely nothing else to Gavin Newsom other than his spouse and his own He's got hair. great teeth. He's and got great a, teeth. And, uh, but, yeah, well, yeah, but that's, you know, has, kind of it's America, has, yes.
1: You know? Has American politics ascended, in, or descended, I presume, into just kind of a cult of narcissism now? Yes,
2: is that it? it's a late stage Rome. Yeah, I mean, exactly that. And there is no there are no ideas, there is no managerialism. Um, you have like can you look at, for example, is, you know if you if you think about this, yes, go say twenty years back, and imagine, say, for example, I don't know, um an equivalent of treasury u s. Treasury, you know official testifying, or social security official testifying in the Congress the questions which would be posited to them would be the questions which were a matter of the record, okay? So in other words, you ask the question because you want an answer, not because you are presenting an answer by asking the same question already. Um, You would ask the question not for the grandstanding, but for the purpose of information and discussion and so forth. And as a result of that, in most cases, those officials from all these agencies, those bureaucrats, career bureaucrats, would not be in a position where they would have to scold and school the policymakers. But in the recent years, including in the recent days, you have absolutely clueless demagogues sitting out there pronunciating something that sounds like a question but really is a statement, uh, nothing more than that, absolutely ill-informed, and they are getting literally publicly face-slapped by the bureaucrats. But but so but... you have the Congress which has absolutely no Capacity to have any class, I, any ability to project any sort of learning, inquiry, uh, deliberation, and then decision
0: making. I, I absolutely accept is, that, but I think also what's happened is they do this set piece. It's like I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement, frame it when frame it as a question, and I'm going to. It'll be two minutes long, so I can put it on Instagram and TikTok, and uh, and exactly. that's what's happening there. Um, look, Constantine, conscious time. I, I want to, but I do think. It's very worrying. And, and I do also think you're right to say that it, it is empire in decline. Um, it just doesn't realize it yet. Some of it, you know, much of it doesn't realize it yet. And the, and the big, the big fear is, um, as you've, as you've alluded to, the situation about migration coming back to the top of the ballot, um, next year is deeply concerning, particularly because, um, human capital in that, to use that phrase that I'm not very always that comfortable with is going to be required in, in, in,
2: uh, 100%. We, the only thing which keeps the United States above the sinking line, above the waterline, is the ability to actually have some sort of the renewal to its workforce. And that is driven predominantly now by the migration, first-generation migration and second-generation migration. So as a result of that, the United States will desperately, especially as the baby boom generation is starting to exit the workforce, not yet quite, because they're actually delaying the exits and there's a lot of interesting demographics happening. But as they're going to start doing so, um, we're going to have a serious problem in terms of both um, kind of what you call human capital, because you know human capital is a very diverse term. It's not just about skills and education. It's also about aptitude. It's about you the way you manage your own perceptions of risk, uh, entrepreneurialism, and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of different components to it. It's a very broad term. The word capital there is actually a misnomer, really. Um, it's more like human capacity. So, for example, you can have somebody with low levels of education, but with great aptitude towards work, with great optimism towards the future, coming into the workforce and making huge difference in terms of their productivity and their spillover from their productivity to others working with them. So there's a, it's a very complex structure. We do need this renewal. We do need this enrichment of society on a continuous basis. And we have utterly, completely dysfunctional internal policies for immigration, but also policies for the inflow from across the border. So in other words, now we have crisis everywhere in immigration. It's not just on the border itself. We have a vast crisis in terms of people who have been living in the United States all their I'm lives. I'm so glad you brought it and up. And yet cannot I, be documented in I'm the United States. I'm so glad States. you
0: brought that up because a couple of years ago, under the Trump administration, there was there was a lot of chaos over the Dreamers, the people who were born That's in the right. U.S. and who were, made their life in the U.S. and that there was going to be an amnesty for the Dreamers. And the, and the people, if you remember constantly, people went to airports and blocked the airports to say, you're not deporting. These yeah. these these are, you know, people who are here all their lives. Um, quietly, the Dreamers Act has been... Shoot way even under the Biden administration. It's just
2: Correct. It's, like, I mean, but the, but the notion of the dreamers itself is so deeply, deeply offensive yeah. uh, to the idea of integration. These are not immigrants. These are the people who have lived in the United States all of their lives. They acquired their education in the United States. They're part of the, you know, physical infrastructure of the United States not to mention social infrastructure and cultural infrastructure of the United States. It is a misnomer to call them anything other than Americans. And the idea that we created this whole kind of, you know, halfway house, holding pattern, purgatory type of thing called the dreamer. You're kind of safe, but you not really are, you know. And you're not really, there's no really status to you, but you're just temporarily a human being out there. It in, in, in itself is an offense. The offense to both the principles on which the America was actually funded, which was funded as a nation of immigrants. Um, and you know, also the principles of actually social humanity that we should recognize by now. It's twenty first century. It's, I just
0: think we really need to move on, But I just want to say, fine, I'm so glad you raised it because if that had been done under Trump, we'd all be screaming, Martin. We'd all be look what Trump did to the to to to. Yeah. And here we are again. But look to come to, just to come to back to um, and it's it is probably it's it's actually obviously America as well, but we see it very pronounced in Dublin. Constantine, there's a secret or a hush hush or a very quiet crash in commercial property that's taking place uh, and just everybody's kind of agreed to sit down and pretend that it's if we don't talk about it, um, we won't have to really face the truth. You're someone who believes eventually the bill has to come due. What's happening yeah. here?
2: So in Ireland, as you mentioned, it is probably a much bigger problem because Ireland has built vast amounts of absolutely useless commercial real estate offices in particular um, in, you know, but it is present in other countries as well. UK had slightly different problem because they had this issue of overbuilding commercial real estate, being masked by the fact that the prime real estate is higher ratings quality, uh, higher quality stock. So there has been some migration from the lower quality stock to the higher quality stock and so forth. So it's kind of all massive. In the United States, it's a huge problem as well. So if you look at the United States where we have quantification of this type of problems, because most of the analysts focus on the countries like the United States and don't really pay attention to Ireland because it's too small, um, then you can look at, you know, so there's about 1.7 trillion estimated hole in the United States banks, which is attributable to the bond markets rot. And there's another 1.3 trillion rot which is attributable to commercial real estate. And this is mark-to-market with a bit of a lag. So in other words, it's gotten worse since then, since the number of $1.3 So you're looking at the $3 trillion hole in banks' balance sheets. This is for commercial banks. What investment banks and private equity and private debt sectors have is probably freaking even worse. Now, in quantum, this is more than our entire 2008 crisis, 2007-2008 crisis. So, I mean, this is going to be really freaking cheerful once we start recognizing how big the hole is. But for now, we have a little bit of a straw on top of the hole, and there is a little bit of the burl up there, and we kind of, you know, have a couple of, you know, your man's, you know, stretching. What, what, it, so what, that it what, kind of
0: looks like oil, that? Oily you know? Coyote has painted a tunnel on the on the on the wall and everybody thinks it's still a rock yeah. there. Just,
1: just of course the big question is always the same question. Cooties, contagion. Constantine,
2: hey. uh, you know, is, there, is
1: the residential uh, property market going to get cooties from this? Well, the residential property market is kind of
2: dead because of the cost of loans right now, cost of mortgages. Um, and also, um, th- that's a very good question, because we think of the residential market as driven by supply and demand. Supply and demand of property, of course, works the following way. We've built all these office blocks. We didn't build enough homes, so as a result of that, the value of homes and the propensity to buy homes, or the incentive to buy homes for the household, is going to be very high. Okay. So, in other words, that side of the equation says what's bad for the commercial real estate should be good for the residential markets, Yes, but that's only because we kind of take a first order effect. When you look at the, what's going to happen over time in the banks, we're going to have to have some sort of the way of dealing with those losses that the commercial real estate and, you know, to a large extent in quantum, but probably time-wise a little bit less pressured, uh, the bank uh, bonds, sorry, bonds, government bonds market collapse um, would entail. Once we start working through that, once the banks start realizing those losses, we're going to go into the scenario of financial repression. Financial repression is something that has happened after the global financial crisis peak. When we started resolving bad loans in the banks. And the result of that was that the banks stopped lending to everyone. They were getting healthier and they were passing more and more of the stress tests and they were generating the value for shareholders. Well, kind of didn't really, you know, but, anyways, okay. Um, but at the same time, as a result of doing all of these things, they stopped lending because they became much more conservative, or they were forced to be much more conservative by the regulators as well. So the knock-on effect of any sort of crisis, doesn't matter whether it's a commercial real estate crisis or it is a nuclear power crisis or whatever else you want to call, once it hits the banks, the banks will stop lending. And that means the mortgages are going to be even dearer. That means that the real estate markets for the housing are going to be in doldrums. Now, Ireland is a very idiosyncratic country. It's a very young country. It's also a country in which the young people haven't had really access to housing markets for more than a decade and a half now. We're under in Ireland to the tune of so many units that nobody can quantify. Ronan Lyons can probably, you know, at this stage, you know, but he's the only one who has a big enough calculator for that type of stuff, okay? The rest of us are going like 200,000, 300,000, 400,000, oh, I don't know, I mean, like it's in hundreds of thousands, okay? When you translate that into the United States, multiply by a factor of 80. Okay. I mean, you're talking about, you know, tens of millions of homes underbuilt. Okay. If that was in the United States, we would have right now probably secession of Texas from the Union. It would have been another civil war. Okay. Yeah. So in Ireland, all of that is being held by this kind of, you know, weird sense of mixture of politics and economics which is projecting on one hand, you know, this existential threat of Sinn Féin, no matter what. I mean, Sinn Féin is coming. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how bad things are today. They're going to only get worse because Sinn Féin is coming, okay? And then on the other hand, it's also this economy which is built on steroids of tax revenue, which nobody knows where it comes from. Well, of course, do. And nobody knows where it goes because you can't really show anything in return for it. I mean, if... If you take Switzerland, and it is a tax haven, and it is pretty good at generating revenues, if Switzerland had a windfall of tax revenues like Ireland does, I can tell you they'll be probably all flying and flying cars at this stage.
1: Well, you see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. They're going to get a 40 million euro jet for the government with a missile defense okay. belt Well, it.
2: that's, you know... But that's, that's again, that's Joe Biden level of aspiration. Yeah, I say, for the level yeah. of surpluses that the Irish government is generating on the side of the corporate tax revenues, it should be a 400 million jet oh, with a okay. whole so, air force attached to it as well. So the, you
1: know? the question for, for Irish people, let's we'll say for the Irish people that are really suffering because they don't have homes or access to homes at the moment, is this going to get worse or better because of the way the situation is now?
2: I don't see how it's going to get better because the only way to make it better is to start freaking building and to start building at reasonable cost in locations where people need them and types of housing that people need. Not the apart hotels, not the, you know, like shared, you know, I don't know what we called in the Soviet Union, kommunalki, where you share a kitchen and a bathroom with another family. You know, no, not that shit. Actual homes, okay? And we're not building them. And when you look at the aspirations of the Irish government, the five billion is going to be allocated to the housing agency for the purpose of construction at the rate of five hundred freaking thousand on average per home. I mean, there are builders across Ireland building for two hundred eighty, and that's freaking. Hang I, 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 Constantine. The
0: uh, Irish government's economic evaluation service said on state land, which we have abundance of, we can we could we can do a two two-bedroom unit. This, albeit. Pre sort of inflation crisis, 180,000 and a and a three bed home from somewhere around 240, 250. Factor in inflation, add, add all that on board. And you're telling me that we're going to pay half a million for what are supposed to be social and affordable homes. And not, and not only fun. is that, it's been flagged as a good thing. They're saying, here we are, we're going to get up on the plinth outside Leinster House and announce it as good
2: news. Well, okay, come on. You know, that's the whole point. Yes, the whole country has gone through the cycle, business cycle. So years, decades, effectively, of booming tax revenues. What do you have to show for it? Where is that spectacular infrastructure? Where is that stock of housing that is so? I mean, even if you're going to say, okay, we wasted it on the commercial real estate and I will challenge you there. Right on the spot, because the commercial real estate in Dublin ain't impressive. I mean, it is not the shards, okay? It's, you know, shreds, you know, strewn around along the leafy. I mean, they Shard defaced, would work. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, they defaced the river front completely for the sake of building, un- you know, uninspiring, boring, five-story PWC offices. I mean, like, come on!
0: Right.
2: Like, that's that's the wealthiest country that's, in Europe. That's, that's, that's unfair. I, there's one know.
0: of them I've seen from across. It has a garden on the roof. So clearly, we're we're really aspirational. We put a garden on one of the
2: roofs. Oh, <laughs> oh that's great! I mean, that's just the ESG <laughs> impact was, is just that going was straight it. through that the roof. That was it roof. exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, you need you are... need to bring about five TCD economists to estimate that one. It's so big, you know. But
1: there is there is plans afoot to put uh, a white water rafting. Course on the private jet. So, yeah. No, but, but, (laughs) like, now you're freaking talking. I mean, you know,
2: (laughs) now I'm liking these ideas. You know, this is something that the Slavini is going to go into the total, you know, meltdown over because. All of their promotion of the extreme sports is just going to go down the drain. Once we're <laughs> One that.
0: thing I want to ra- ra- raise, and I should never lose sight of it, is we're now looking. We're not, by the way, taking this five billion um, for the LDA from the surpluses, Constantine. We're going to borrow some of it.
2: No, I know. No, we can't really take it from the surpluses because we spent uh, uh, the surpluses on building the children's uh, hospital, which is, you know,
1: is have they finished the my, thing?
0: My point is. <laughs> Are the
1: children oh, allowed oh, now? Know. Listen, listen, when they first... <laughs> when they laid the first brick, you, with... were,
0: you were only born, Martin.
2: Dude, <laughs> I mean, like, don't tell me. I used to be the editor of Business and Finance magazine back in the years when they were talking about the definitive plans for how to build it when, and where to build you it. When were you
1: editor of Business It was like
2: 2000, 2004, 2005 I was the editor, about there, you know. Oh, I mean, we have to have a listen, chat. Listen, listen, car, listen, yeah. listen, yeah. listen. Yeah, it was a you know, we had these Napoleonic plans that our trains are going to run at the average speed of 42 kilometers. Can
0: we, can we not, can we not break, can we not just actually bring it back and say to people, by the way, just remind you, we're going to borrow... Even though we refused to borrow a few years ago when the ESRI even told, at us, zero, told
1: us. At zero and uh, minus interest. So now mates. we're
0: gonna borrow when it's cost us more and we wouldn't do it <laughs>
1: <laughs> when it was free. No, I know, <laughs> I know. It's just so frustrating. Listen, it's I mean, so and it's frustrating. actually,
2: you know what's even more frustrating, and I'm not sure you lads, you know, kind of appreciate that, okay? Our NTMA is actually very competent. So our management of bond structure and the issuance of the debt and the profiling of debt over a period of time, in a, since the global financial crisis time, has become excellent, really good. That means that people like Conor Kelly, the top brass at NTMA, have briefed this government about the profiling of the debt, when to borrow, what's the better time to borrow, you know, and how to borrow best. And yet, we still ended up with waiting till the peak flip in interest rates in order to go and borrow.
0: No, it's. It,
1: yeah. It's, I mean,
2: who makes freaking decisions?
1: I think we could we could certainly talk all, and at some stage we have got to get you back over here and put you on stage and actually do a show with you. <laughs> and we actually got to do it, but we could talk about this all day, constantly. But thanks for coming on and. You paint such a rosy picture of the world that I'm sure we're going to leave this conversation saying, <laughs> that's great. The future I, looks
0: great. I, 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 I need to, what is it? Is it scream therapy is the new thing? Where you just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go try... Cause, or, or I'm coming over to Colorado where weed is legal. <laughs> no, 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 you see,
1: see Trump gets in and, and constantly be heading this way. and I have a shed.
0: Oh,
2: very last question. How's the... Tra- Trumpometer. Uh, What's the Trumpometer like? Oh, Trumpometer is very interesting. Trumpometer has gone completely off Trump about a couple of months ago. And this is very telling because not just the Trumpometer, but his neighbors, who are also kind of part of the broader Trumpometer, they all have replaced their Trump flags with a non-Bidenary household. uh, flags. So in other words, they're kind of still staying on the side of the Republicans, of course, diehards and everything else. But they removed an identification whom they're going to vote for. And I'm wondering whether that is a combination of them being all the demographic and starting to kind of bite the bullet and understand that Trump is in very deep legal troubles, uh, or it is simply that they are afraid to present themselves into the public as staunch Trump supporters in the current climate and they're just being paranoid about the federal agents coming after them as well as they're coming after Trump so something is definitely strange brewing there on the other hand is you know in my gym i have a very big component of the oil field workers and it's interesting talking to them occasionally you know just exchanging a few words here and there They are still diehard Trumpies and they're still going to, you know, saying things like they're going to vote for Trump and there's no one else and so forth. But they are also talking about kind of more deeper level of paranoia about the federal government. So it's very interesting because this polarization now seems to be pushing a lot of the sentiment out of the public view more into the private. And that's, of course, is even more dangerous than just having them up front, you know, standing with the flags and. Both and, and, and so. Forth.
0: You, you, I think, uh, I think you'll be coming here, back. I think you'll be running back here before, uh, before we're running over there. That's for sure. That's <laughs> the way it's going to go. Thanks again. It's always a pleasure, and hope hope to chat to you before the Christmas, friend. And uh, let's let's see let's see how things go. Um, we, we will be back. We, we will more good news. We'll be covering more events in Gaza as we have been relentlessly. It's been it's been a lot, folks. We'll talk to you all soon. Take
1: care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin. Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.